0: And to me, the answer there was um, a free commercial sector. That that was the really revolutionary moment. Um, which is another reason I think he would have been appalled by by coronavirus lockdowns because they they were nothing if not an elite uh, racket. It was just just hid in their homes and protect themselves from the pathogen while using the working class and poor as their sandbags. Get out there, get infected, uh, create herd immunity for me. Let me know when it's safe. That was the ethos, and um, it was it was a disgusting, a, a disgusting ascendance of uh, ruling class values over uh, the poor and working classes, exactly as you expect
1: with all forms of government. Planning. Hi, welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and I, um, I am with Jeffrey A. Tucker, who is an independent editorial consultant. Um, he is the author of many thousands of articles in scholarly and popular press and eight books in five languages, most recently Liberty or Lockdown. Um, he is also the editor of The Best of Mises. Uh, he speaks on widely on, on topics of economic technology, social philosophy, and culture, and he's a good friend of the program and I just Thank you for being on, Jeffrey.
0: It was my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for thinking of me.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I be, before I uh, we we talk about the subject at hand, I want to just mention the great work that you've done on um, this last year. or So um, as it pertains to the 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 pandemic, um, I, I have to I've been following your work um, and and the work of your colleagues, and it's you know. You've, you've you you you've taken a very I'll say humble approach to the virus itself, and yet you've been steadfast in the ideas of liberty and the ideas that that you know personal choice and and these kind of these kind of concepts and, and it, it, I think a lot of people in the liberty movement um, honestly kind of dropped the ball on and this this crisis that that has happened and and I just wanted to congratulate you thank you for keeping me sane over the last year or so. Yeah, a lot of people have said
0: that that there's a kind of a.
1: I never really thought of myself
0: as. I always thought of myself as just a writer, intellectual, you know. Um, but yeah, so many people have said to me that there's been a real psychological benefit to my writings on the topic because it made them feel as if they weren't alone, you know. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of people had this feeling that something was very wrong with the world, but they didn't know they didn't know what it was, or you know how public health uh, policy should approach something like a pandemic. They just, people have not really thought it through. And so they're kind of blindsided. I mean, this is sort of the way governments work. It's like, well, you can have your liberty and your rights most of the time, except now there's a actual terrible thing happening that nobody really expected. And... You know that can be anything. You know, um, uh, well, you know we can have liberty, except there's there's con- Soviet communism is threatening the world, uh, but now it's terrorism, um, right? Uh, you know, uh, and you know in the Middle Ages it was vampires and um, heresy, and you know. Uh, you know, there's there's always the big excuse for why we can't have normal lives, and this is all part of trying to keep the population in a kind of constant state of fear, so that they, so that they comply. And and fear is a very interesting emotion because it's typically focused, you know, it's a lizard brain function of our of our thinking. It's like um, fear fear drives out rational risk assessment. It's, so you just focus on one thing you're really scared of. Uh, nuclear war, uh, communism, terrorism, um, witchcraft, uh, the virus, and and every other consideration just kind of goes by the wayside. And so, um, so it's a, it's it's irrational, uh, but that's it's a feature of of fear. And obviously, you know, the population gets used to you know the the the. The fear of the day over time, and they began to, when people began to suspect a racket, you know, like, well, maybe Protestantism isn't so terrible. Maybe the vampires aren't coming for me. Uh, Maybe the Soviet Union is not a global behemoth threatening our liberty, but is a decrepit, falling down old regime, you know, and people gradually catch on. You know, Iraq doesn't have uh, weapons of mass destruction. And so people gradually catch on. So then, uh, powerful people who want you to give up your liberties have to change the topic so the issue of uh, of of germs in particular and viruses um, has been sort of been on the back burner now for about fifteen years in terms of a possible uh, deployment you know it's been it's been sitting there as a as a way to control the population, but it's not really been deployed. So all this nonsense began back in 2006 um, when the CDC first changes guidelines from being traditional public health uh, concerns, which is keep the population calm. Um, If you get sick, go to your doctor. Um, Continue life as normal because the collateral damage of of extreme measures is too high. And plus, those measures don't really work. We know from experience from 1918, we know they don't work. We know the mask mandates don't, don't actually control the virus and so on. So let's just you know, um, do what we did in 1957, 58, and 68, 69, and and 24, and 42, and so on. Uh, and and but in 2006, you know, a new theory took over, which is that we can use the power of the state to uh, manage the virus and control people, um, game the virus. Cause they are not follow fall below one, uh, flatten the curve, uh, engage in targeted layered intervention and track and trace and all these things, and um, keep people apart. Right, that's a really important sort of core principle of this nonsense. And keeping people apart was a way of kind of getting people to comply with the modular, um, mechanistic approach that uh, that had been doped out, you know, some 15 years ago by, you know, a minority of fanatics really within. Uh, the computer science industry and and epidemiology. Um, but over the course of 15 years, they just got sort of ever more lusty to try out their theories. And, you know, they, they had tried it in 2009. It didn't work.
1: And then again in 2012 and 13 with SARS-CoV-1. And when uh, you say it didn't work, you're, you're saying that the people didn't comply, like they didn't buy into it.
0: Uh, well, there wasn't... The conditions weren't right for whipping up the public fear enough. Gotcha. Um, because uh, that was an H1N1, by the way, which is the same, it's a mutation of 1918, actually. So, um, you know, it was a pretty, pretty darn scary. It turned out, you know, the Obama administration dealt with it with just traditional public health measures, uh, which is, again, keeping people calm and dealing with pathogens as just they're part of life. And that, had, you know, but the big problem in 2009. And the reason why this didn't happen is there are two considerations. One was that um, they hadn't yet taken over the epidemiological profession, um, but the second thing is that we're in the middle of a financial crisis and people were too distracted, so they couldn't they couldn't deploy their schemes back then. So it had to wait, you know, another uh, eleven years before the right virus came along, and and then finally all the pieces uh, fell into place. You know, whether it was the, the Gates funding or um, new innovations in MRNA technology. Um, uh, I think very critically uh, for lockdowns is that uh, there is a, you know, a growing public re- populist public revolt around the Western world, and um, progressives really wanted to crush it. And the best way to crush something like that is to introduce kind of wild chaos. So that was a factor too. There were a lot of things that came together that um, caused these lockdowns. And then... You mentioned about, I mean, like I wrote about SARS-CoV-2 for the first time in January of 2020 and warned that quarantines were were a power that the state presumed uh, to have uh, and that it was written in the, in the um, disease plans of the CDC um, and that it could happen. And people thought it was crazy. But, you know, sure enough two, you know, three months later, it happened. And then people just thought it
1: was like, well, I guess this is what we
0: do. No, it's not what we do. It's
1: not what we do. And- right. And, and, the, and, the, and the classic meme was, oh, it was just going to be two weeks, as you said, to flatten the curve. And, and people kind of bought into it because they thought it was just a temporary, um, you know, a temporary thing that, that wasn't really going to affect their lives in a major way. Um, but we are just, okay, you know, we're, we, we all want to protect our neighbors and such. And, and, and it was, it was such a benign setup, you know, and then the bait and switch happened.
0: Sure. That was that, that 15 days thing was, was, a, a, a marketing ploy by Fauci and Burks to sell Trump on the idea. Cause they knew they couldn't, uh, uh get him to shut down the country for a year. Uh, certainly not all the way to the election, but they knew they could convince him that 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 he had the the, the, the power to to shut everything down for for two weeks, and they figured they you know when the two weeks are up, it's mathematically impossible that you could suppress a virus in two weeks through human liberation. It's Ridiculous. They knew that it doesn't work out. I mean, the math doesn't check out at all. Um, I mean, it's just not possible. So after. You know, a couple weeks, I came to him and said, "Mr. President, you did a wonderful, wonderful, brave, bold thing by shutting everything down, but um, but now you need to continue it because if if uh, uh, if you if you open everything up now, all the gains we've made, you know, will be lost." And so he's like, "Geez, okay." So he he went along with another two weeks, and then another week, and then he started going on about how we're going to have a resurrection at Easter. But then he got scared um, that he couldn't do that. Uh, the big problem that the White House had at the time was that they had convinced Trump from from as early as February or even late January that his goal should be to minimize cases. And so every new case was, he was told, was a failing of his administration. So he became the original sort of zero COVID person, you know. He's like, okay, I can't have any cases. Well, that's a nice setup. Um, Because then every day, he'd come along, you know, they'd they'd walk into his office and he'd say, oh, how's the virus doing? Well, bad news. Um, We found 14 new cases. Um, uh, We're now up to 28. And he's like, oh, no, this is terrible. So, you know, so he saw that as his metric. And as a businessman, he was looking for a metric of success or failure. And and uh, the rise of cases to him was failure, and the, and the falling of cases was success. Well, this is a perfect setup. You know, at, at that point, there was nothing, he couldn't, he couldn't work his, his way around that problem. Uh, once he decided to suppress the virus, they had him where they wanted him. And um, so he, at, at, his own, at his own hands, uh, betrayed every principle that he stood for, and uh, and he did it in the name of public health. So he was, and he could have resisted, but he didn't. He went along with it, and he didn't get wise to the scheme until about it was late April, early May. He just stopped meeting with Burke and Fauci, and then he let a month go by where he just decided not to think about it, although it vexed him like crazy. And finally, it was as late as July. He finally got. A, he was watching Fox News, and he got a hold of this guy named Scott Atlas. And Scott Atlas came along and uh, uh, shaped him up and, and made him realize central points about intimacy and herd immunity and um, you know good principles of public health. And he was, I think at that point, I'm probably talking too much, but at that point he um, realized that he had done terrible things, but then you have another problem that Trump's famously unwilling to admit error. And uh, so instead of admitting the error, Uh, He just decided on his own to try to change the subject. So he just literally stopped talking about it between August and the election with that brief interlude in which he actually got COVID, shook it off. And then I think that was the greatest moment of his presidency. He said, we do not need to fear this virus. You know, we need to treat it as a sickness and deal with it as individuals. And then he went on to say, wow, now that I've had it, I have immunities, which I just thought, thank God somebody's talking about natural immunity finally. But it was a, it was a, an amazing mess. Um, Trump, you know, is not a stupid man. Very smart, very brave. Um, I don't agree with a ton of his ideas. I, I think he's uh, hugely problematic um, ideologically. But um, but he he got out uh, smarted. I mean, he was yeah. outwitted and outwitted, and um, actually allowed himself to destroy his presidency. I mean, that's the reason he lost the election was because of his hand. Clearly. You know, and, uh, and it's, it, and then he dragged the house and Senate with him, you know, and now we have a one party state. So there you go. The, the The plan worked.
1: It, yeah, it did. And, 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 you know, the, and, and economically, you know, we're, we're seeing such devastation. Um, you know, I, I just saw the, the new um, uh, uh, consumer price index is is just skyrocketing because of because you know when you lock people down and then and then you just you know start increasing the the debt in order to make people feel okay temporarily for being locked down um, you know it, it, the inevitable I mean inflation just happened and now prices are going to increase and 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 somehow the 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 virus you know the the actual virus has created an, a new, you know, economic virus, and and that that is abs- that's kind of reshaping our world at kind of as we see it. So we're gonna we see a new set of crises happening. That's how I see it.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's a little step in in your narrative that's fairly interesting to consider. Um, on March 27th, so you know, uh, Trump gave his press conference on March 16th, in which. Like why anybody thought that was normal, you know, my God, you know, Burks got on national television and said, "Our main goal here is to keep everybody separate." Like what? What does that mean? Keep everybody separate? I mean, that's that's not that's a totalitarian vision. I mean, that's 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 dismantling of fundamental structures of of the way of life. I mean, that's, that was an appalling comment, but it was accurate. That's what they wanted. Um, now, two weeks later. You know, at that magic moment, um, there's two ways we could have gone. Um, we could have just said, "Okay, that was." Hope everybody enjoyed your Netflix binge watching, and you know, let's all get back to work. Um, the virus has got to become endemic. Let's just move on. But instead, Congress got in business, and they were like, "Okay, um, we've got to bail everybody out for what was did to them. We've got to compensate everybody for this." for for uh, these forced closures, stay on home orders and you know, school lockdowns and church closures and all this stuff so so they proposed a 2.3 trillion dollar spending bill that was on March 27th. they were all huddled in their homes um, trying to figure out you know and they were gonna pass this thing on a zoom on a zoom call you know and Thomas Massey from Kentu- Kentucky one of the smartest guys in Congress for sure um, actually, demanded a quorum uh, and and infuriated his colleagues. And so everybody had to go to Washington. <laughs> and Trump, um, you know, lit into him and denounced him on Twitter and said, this guy is you know, evil, is grandstander, he has to be kicked out of the Republican Party and so on. Um, but they all went there and on a voice vote. Um, and as far as Massey knows, he was the only voice of mm-hmm. opposition, uh, they passed this 2.5 $3 trillion trillion spending bill. Now, what that did was uh it, it gave money to the states for continuing the lockdown. So, so suddenly, you know, all the states had locked down, the governments had locked down their economy. Now um, they're being flooded with a windfall of cash. So what was the incentive to open up at that point? I mean the tax the tax base was collapsing. Uh people were furious. But all the governments were, were experiencing unprecedented amounts of subsidies. And they are like, wow, these lockdowns are pretty good after all. You Absolutely. Know? Might as well continue. So it created what's called a moral hazard,
1: you know? I was, I was you know, and, and obviously this is incidental to, to our area, but it, it, I was shocked during this lockdown, you know, how much public works were going, how many, how many roads were being fixed. How many things were being done? I kept looking around every day, like more orange cones were going up everywhere. And I was thinking, where, where is all this happening? How, how, how are we in this complete crisis? And yet all I see is, is is governments flushed with cash and and with no um, idea of, of how that's going to eventually be paid for.
0: Yeah, and we know how it happened. It was the Fed went in and bought. You know half the new debt you know right and uh um that created like if you just look at the money supply data you know it's absolutely shocking um you know these hockey sticks you know we thought we had seen monetary expansion in the past and we've never seen anything remotely like this now it didn't generate inflation at least initially because you had a huge, at the same time, uh, increase in the demand for cash balances. So the velocity of money collapsed, as what always happens in an economic crisis. Happened in 2008, happened in 1932 and 1931. So that puts a little bit of a a break on uh, the price response to to monetary expansion. Um, And then also, you know, productivity just collapsed. So there wasn't anything really going on. Um, but you know, there's a long and variable lags associated with monetary policy and and the implications. And I don't know what that looks like going forward. The inflation we're having right now is in part monetary driven, but it's also, um, structurally driven in the sense of like, you know, there's just a lot of things that have gone way up in price because of broken supply chains, you know, shortages and stuff. So, you know, sussing out which one is, which is uh, not going to be easy, but Hey, the great thing about the unfolding of history is that we'll eventually know, and yeah. uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But it's, well, whatever and, it is, it's not going to be good.
1: And, and to transition a little bit into into um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is is coming up is is the the anniversary of the birthday of uh, von Mises, and and he's a great. Um, I, I I love Mises. I, I love learning about him um, as a self-educated guy, I guess he's, he's one of those guys that just that kind of, um, really, he seems like a very, a, a, an intellectual, um, uh, hero. He, he stood up for what he truly believed. And I'm curious, maybe, uh, if we can, we can put him in today's, what, what do you think some of the things that he would be saying? And, and then we can talk a little bit about his history and his legacy, but I think this is part of his legacy. What would he say in a crisis, it's not like he was. He went through crises himself. What What are some of the things that he would say about today?
0: It's pretty interesting because I think you you have to look at like what would Mises' attitude toward, be towards a, a public health disaster like this? You know, um, what would he recommend? And I'm pretty sure I can say with confidence he would say whatever the solution is, it's not going to be provided by. By lockdowns and big government. I mean, that's you know, there's plenty of problems in the world, but they're better solved by people and markets. Um, Now, to my knowledge, I have really scoured Mises to try to find something in his works about um, how society deals with pathogens, Um, and I can't find anything about it because it just wasn't history. But now he wrote, he wrote uh, Nation State and Economy in 1919. So he would have had knowledge of the 1918 pandemic, but um, you know the, the the government response to that was so sporadic and geographically isolated that it just it, it was not a problem he ever really dealt with. In 1922, he wrote a book called Socialism, which is a great book, um, in which he does have a section in there on on, on health in general, and he said that everything government does to promote health actually promotes ill health that that reduces people's will to stay healthy and he makes the point that you know health is a, to a surprising extent a, a reflection of individual volition it's you know whether you want to be healthy whether you're um uh taking care of yourself kind of thing and he said everything government does uh, 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 to Intervene in the health sector actually promotes uh, subsidizes ill health. So that was his comment there. It wasn't about viruses in particular, um, and actually one of the real problems. And again, this goes goes back to the point I was making at the outset about crises in general. Um, you know, the, the the trick that the the state uh, wants to engage in is uh, to find something. Uh, to do that the population is, has very little experience with. You know, uh, you know, after World War II, people didn't have experience with something like well, a communist state. You know, they got scared. Or um, after uh, 9-11, you know, there were, they didn't have experience with buildings being blown up by terrorists. And so it, people are willing to forego their fundamental rights when they think that there's an emergency. So they managed to turn this... What I think is a very normal pathogen uh, into a, a big uh, disease panic, a primal medieval-style disease panic, and it worked. Uh, so I don't. I think Mises would have been hip to it. Um, it's really
1: hard to say because he didn't speak to this issue a, at all. Well, um, yeah. W- one of the things um, that you actually wrote in in the book you edited, the best of Mises, yeah, um, which we'll put in the in the in the show notes, um, is. Uh, You wrote this in in the preface, "Um, the choice of freedom of control makes the difference between life of dignity and opportunity over degradation and suffering. In Life and Property, Mises identifies the crucial difference that capitalism made. It shifted the, the locus of control from the elites to the common person, thereby unleashing human creativity and massively raising living standards for everybody. Right. And, and I think that goes kind of to what your point is, is, as far as, you know, maybe he didn't speak specifically about pathogens and and, and public health in, in that way. But but certainly his principle was that, um, you know, the idea of, of capitalism, the idea of, of choice and dignity um, will always um, be a better solution than that of control and, and government.
0: Yeah, that's right. And. Uh, the particular point about the elites is interesting because Mises really was a believer in the common person as the sort of the the driving force of progress, and he believed that the great revolution of um, the rise of capitalism. I'm, I'm using all these terms with some trepidation because they all require definition. But um, uh, modern capitalism was that it was a revolution in terms of um, uh, marketing that uh, the elites were no longer uh, solely in control of the world, but rather the common person could direct. You know how much to produce, what is produced, and you know, at what price, and and direct direct the uh, development of technology. And he really believed that average people um, should be in charge, and that that was the great, um, as far as he was concerned, the great political project from the day from the ancient world. It's like. How do we have a kind of social order in which average people can exercise volition and control and experience um, social progress with a sense of equality and, and dignity? And to me, the answer there was um, a free commercial sector that that was the really revolutionary moment. Um, which is another reason, I think he would have been appalled by, by coronavirus lockdowns because they, they were nothing, if not an elite. Uh, racket it was just um you know the one third of the workforce that could uh, you know could z- make their z- zoom their lives um, uh, just hid in their homes and protect themselves from the pathogen while using the working class and poor as their sandbags, get out there, get infected, uh, create herd immunity for me, let me know when it's safe. That was the ethos, and um it was it was a disgusting a, a disgusting ascendance of. Uh, ruling class values over uh, the poor and working classes, exactly as you expect with all forms of government planning.
1: Yeah, that's, and I think that's the, the hidden price that, that we're, um, it's, it's, it's hidden because so many of of us, you know, I feel very privileged. I'm, uh, you know, don't consider myself an elite but i have enough technology that i i can do work remotely if i need to we're doing this podcast remotely you know i can do a lot of things and 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 frankly not have a lot of contact with people if i don't want to and um and and that's just not reality for much of the world especially the the poor and those that are vulnerable and and yet it's the poor and vulnerable that that the the elites seem have to to always uh, professes wanting to help and it it's really frustrating that it's it's exactly those people that is um, always being hurt the, the most um, they're 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 the they're the forgotten man you know they're, they're the ones that that completely um, pay the price for these uh, um, for these draconian measures that, that we've been going under um, and and then and it's it's nothing new I I, I look at you know um, uh, uh you know history world war one communism all the all these big big um problems that or theories that that people have um about creating a, a utopia and a happy you know great place always seem to to come down to a small elite governing um the rest the rest of us plebs <laughs> and um it, it, it always ends up in disaster every time and and at some point it would be wonderful for for people to, to remember that.
0: This has always been true, in particular with regard to disease. The There are whole social systems that are structured around distinguishing between the clean and the unclean. Um, the ruling class always wants to stay free of disease. There's a, a weird pathology um, on the part of the well-to-do that they imagine that they are deserving of a cle- cl- more cleanliness. Um, and they have a much greater degree of like what you call like germophobia than you'll find in, and, in, and in other in than in the working classes and the poor. Um, and it's just a man, a mindset. And, and uh, it was true in the ancient world, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the cholera epidemics always took place outside the city and everybody just hid from them. It's was true in the deep South that the um, wealthy, uh, uh, slave owners, you know, would um, the gentlefolk, you know, would hide, hide in, their, in their mansions, you know, from yellow fever and just let the slaves get it. And, um, um, you know, it was true in, the, in biblical times too, you know, the diseased were never allowed anywhere in, in, in near the temple, you know, and you had to go through a ritualistic cleansing to get in. So we have a long history of stratifying and segregating um creating feudal structures in the name of disease avoidance um we gradually got out of that in the western world by the ascendance of the idea of individual rights and equality and so suddenly it was like okay we're not going to we're not going to restructure society in terms of you know, pathogen avoidance we're going to um, we're all going to share equally in the burden of, of dealing with the new pathogens. The uh, um, and the herd immunity is not something you know for one group to uh, to to uh, bear on their own, but that everybody bears it equally, uh, with one exception, which is that um, the very vulnerable uh, populations, which are you know almost always um, with these kinds of respiratory. Uh, viruses they're almost always the aged and infirm and so but the thing about the principle of age um, and why we want to use you know allow uh, focus protection for the elderly is that um, that's a you know age is something that doesn't discriminate based on religion or race or language or social class it's a it's an it's a principle of equality so you know the the elderly We've always believed, you know, um, um, we're entitled to, uh, to to isolate, you know, and to and to uh, avoid the pathogen while the rest of society goes about its business and and experiences ex- exposure and uh, and then uh, bolstered and improved immune systems as a result. That's the that's the benefit. So if you're not dying, then you're actually getting stronger, right? Um, um, and that was the principle that we used for a large part of the, the 20th century. It was a very modern, actually in the United States, we used that in the 19th century too, yeah, except for the deep south where you had the stratified disease avoidance system. But um, for the most part, we just gradually came to the conclusion that that we have a social contract uh, that's associated with the presence of pathogens, which is that you know we don't uh, impose the burden on people based on religion and race and class, but rather share it all equally. In exchange for which we get human rights and freedom, and that's the deal that we made. Uh, implicit and uh, uh, is kind of an evolved form of social contract—not anything you sign, but just something that you recognize because we recognize that the the um, alternative to this is actually despotism, segregation, and feudalism. You know. Yeah. Um, and with the lockdowns, we just decided to forget all that, all those principles, and 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 adopted an, a new principle, and, and it was grim. And what? Well, See the think, results.
1: Yeah, I think you can't. And, and, I mean, when we're talking about liberty and freedom. Like you cannot take away the um, the other side of the coin, which is um, risk, personal accountability, um, you know, and and danger those two are, are two of the same things. And it's about assessing the risk and, and making wise choices and, and, you know, and also, um, uh, you know, taking, um, I guess, I guess, uh, maintain a, a certain amount of faith from the standpoint of, of bad things are going to happen. And bad things are, bad things may happen no matter what. And no good, no government or anybody else can protect you from bad things happening and and i think we live in a society now that that is kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too from a standpoint of like somehow we're going to be perfectly free and yet perfectly protected by some by somebody else and and all of our decisions are made um it's just an interesting idea that that we we this this we can't get away from from we can't uncouple those two ideas. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: A lot of people were willing to do it in this case because there was there's a widespread sense um, dating from you know the second week of March or something like that, 2020, that this was uh, that this virus was something really unusual and really ferocious. It was like a plague. You couldn't see it. Um, you don't know where it is, but it's probably everywhere, and it's probably going to kill you. Uh, this was this was the prevailing ethos and so people were willing to to give up everything you know for this um without any evidence you know uh uh actually it's it's not quite right i mean we ha- had evidence from the diamond princess um we had evidence at that point from nursing home deaths we we knew we had a lot of knowledge about the case fatality ratio of this particular thing um the the population that was most Vulnerable to it, and so we knew a tremendous amount of things, but we just decided to ignore all that um, and just promote disease panic. and And people just got consumed. They, you know, I mean, God, when you think about the appalling behavior people engaged in, you know, um, covering their bodies up with cellophane and and uh, denouncing people for touching their groceries and afraid to get their mail because I think it's just filled with virus. And you know, <laughs> the whole thing was just
1: an incredible, an incredible, I still still see people, you know, I don't mind people wiping down counters and things, but, but that's not the point. The point is they're wiping down counters because they, they still seem to think like the virus is sitting there on the counter waiting for them to pick up.
0: Well, if you can't see it, then it could be anywhere. Right. So, so so you fill in your ignorance with, you know, your imagination and then, and, 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 you know, I mean, it is a reality that we're surrounded by germs. You know, there's you know a billion times more germs than, than there are bodies in your cell in your, and cells in your body. So, I mean, the, you know, germs are everywhere, and and that's why we evolved with immune systems to deal with it. And you know, the more exposure we experience, uh, uh, the healthier we get, and the longer our lives, uh, longer the lives we live. Like one of the things that um, thinkers in our tradition. Uh, have neglected is the contribution that improved um, the contribution that the rise of transportation and trade in the late 19th century and early part of the 20th century dramatically improved our immune systems by virtue of our exposure to a greater uh, heterogeneity of of pathogens. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, people ask, well, how come... How can we live till 79 now but 100 years ago we, we the average age of death was was 56. Well, I mean that's a gigantic leap and people say well it's because we have better doctors and we have you know gyms or I don't you know you people have all kinds of you know prospered in general we have cleaner water and so on. Um yeah, there's some truth to that but the, but 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 there's also a huge contribution that Exposure has made uh, to given us longer lives. So our, our immune systems are weirdly scalable. I mean, like we evolve with astounding capacities for disease resistance, provided we are willing to um, experience exposure to the mild pathogen as a, as a means by which we can avoid the more serious pathogen. But that that's a little counterintuitive. But um, it made a huge difference in in the immunological map of the Western world you know it, it just it we have better immune systems now um, in prosperous countries around the world than have ever existed in the whole of humanity ever and that's why people live such a long time now that's a, a major contributing factor is capitalism and trade that
1: enabled that. Well, because when you're trading with people, you're engaging with people, you're, you're with people. And, and that goes back to your statement before about the necessity to keep us apart. Um, you know, because once you do that, then there is only one method to keep you safe. And that's, and I just saw, I, I saw something the other day where, where um, states are, are considering another mask mandate, another lockdown, uh, you know, as if, as if, as if we're going to eradicate disease completely um it's so hubris it just drives me insane
0: the los angeles case is a very interesting one because you know tomorrow night at midnight goes in a new mask mandate um and i was looking at the data this morning you know and it's always so I'm so tired of doing this but every time i hear some big new government program to to uh, crush the virus i look at the data. And, uh, the, you know, cases are down 93% in Los Angeles County, like 93% down from its peak, you know. Um, hospitalizations are rising, but they're rising relative to being almost flat, you know. And deaths are, are as low as they've been. I mean, there's, there's a good argument that, you know, all else equal without migration and, and things that, um, there's plenty of herd immunity that's been obtained already, especially with the vaccinations that are just really high in, um, and, and, uh, in that county. So, you know, why do they do it? And that's a, that's a very interesting question, you know, because it's not obvious why. Uh, it, well they, what they say is, well, their models demand that if you have such and such an increase of, of cases over a seven-day period, then uh, we have to have masks. You know, not that there's any evidence at all, you know, drawing a connection between, you know, the masking and the disease suppression. There's just not. I mean, there's quite a lot of evidence. How do you put it? There's no evidence that there's uh, any kind of uh, causal relationship there. But they do it anyway. Um, And I just think at this point, you know, what's driving policy is uh, just uh, public health officials who just have enjoyed the hell out yeah. of their lives for the last year and a half. You know, being doted on by the media, uh, ordering everybody around. Um, it, it's a real kick. You know, yeah. you, you languish in obscurity your whole life. You know, you've got a degree in public health. You've got a stupid bureaucratic position. You don't work and you haven't. And then suddenly everybody's like, hey, 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 what should we do? What should we do? Wow, well, we should wear masks. and we should... So it's kind of a cool thing. So it's well, just it's their, it's their moment in
1: the sun. It is, it, it, by the way, and it does remind me of Kind of when um, Keynesian's ideas came really to the forefront in the early 19th, 1900s and the early 20th century. Because it was, you know, it, 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 what it did is, is it, uh, it gave government and officials an excuse to do the things they always wanted to do, you know, without the repercussions of, of losing at the ballot box. In other words, they, they you know, uh, all of a sudden you could spend all the money you want. And, and there's no repercussions. In fact, it's good for the economy if all we do is spend and, and oh, we can lock down all we want. And we, you know, there's no repercussions because, hey, there's, um, you know, we have to protect ourselves from the disease. In other words, it gives sociopaths a reason to to do the things they've always wanted to do, which is control people.
0: Um, yeah, I don't have anything to add to what you just said. I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, and that's the fundamental um thing here, you know, I, I think the, the the lockdowns happened because people were enormously confused about immunology and, and epidemiology and public health. But once once they happened, you suddenly, you know, you, you were engaged in a huge social political experiment. Like how much power can the state um actually um um, engage in you know how much power can they actually uh, deploy on the population to what extent are people going to put up with it how deep is this research uh how how deep is the reach of the state can we go into every home um can we tell people how many people they can have in their homes can we shut the churches i mean you wouldn't think so but they kept stepping it up and stepping it up and stepping it up uh, let's shut the bars let's um um have restaurants that have capacity and let's kick the kids out of school you know let's just see uh, uh the the range of of our power here and let's deploy it. We can always roll it back later, but then we will know well the, the, they got the worst lesson in twenty twenty about you know just surely what was what was possible and and you've surely noticed this it's 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 no longer just about disease control it really is about social and political management of the population. That's the driving ethos now. Uh, we've traveled so far from anything like a liberal spirit. Um, it's actually terrifying, uh, the, the extent to which illiberal ideology is unleashed on the world uh, today and every sector of life. And, and in a way that's, I think, enormously shocking to those of us who have Traditionally, been very optimistic about the future of, of liberty. I always have been, and so to just wake up one day and the foundations of civilization itself it just crumble beneath your feet um, is shocking. And I think at this point, what we're dealing with is that there's so much anger and fury in the public right now, all over the world. There's so much uh, um, disgust, uh, especially as people you know, discover that, you know, the infection fatality rate for under 70 is, you know, uh, you know, 0.05 and, and so on, you know, as people discover this is a normal pathogen. Uh, it's like, well, why then do we, why then do we do this, you know, that led to 30% increase in the drug overdose, fifty per percent collapse in a cancer screening. It's like, you know, why do we, why do we give up all of our liberties for this? So right now, the there's a strong attempt, and you'll see it alive in any uh, any government policy now, to um, to suppress information because they need to do that. That's why Biden administration is directly controlling Facebook now. Um, they have to suppress the distribution of information, and they have to um, intimidate people into not thinking for themselves, and and to make sure that. You know the angry masses aren't just, you know, going to revolt. So that's what we're in right now. It's a, it's a, a period of massive political control.
1: Well, and and what do you think? Because one of the things that that um, has bothered me, um, one of the shocking things uh, that is has been, I know there's a lot of anger out there, but it seems to be paper tiger anger, <laughs> in my opinion, like it, there's people complaining and there's people, you know, saying, oh, I can't believe. And yet, yet there's so much compliance at the same time. I, I don't see, um, and, and maybe I'm just in the wrong place, but but I I, I guess I wish I saw more of a resistance to, um, uh, you know, to these, these draconian measures, to the idea that somehow the governor, you know, of a state or the president of the United States can, can just dictate whether somebody's going to knock on your door and see if you've had the vaccine or not.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of resistance out there. The problem is that it's having a hard time finding a way to express itself. Ah, that's good, yeah. We've got tremendous uh, uh, censorship right now, tremendous control of information flows. Uh, people are desperately right now looking for alternative platforms, and they're finding them. But, you know, all the mainstream videos from Twitter to YouTube... To your basic Google searches, you know, um, are completely, you know, d- designed to just push one message and call everything else misinformation, disinformation, you know, it doesn't pass the fact checkers and that sort of thing. So there's a real attempt to control people in that way. And during the lockdowns, you know, <laughs> it's really helpful. We used to have the um, right to redress and associate, you know, and to get out and protest. But lockdowns were like, no, no, you have to stay home. You can't hang out with people. Um, it's fine if you want to give somebody a Zoom call, that's okay. But you can't go out in the streets. Um, that changed in the summer when finally the the George Floyd protests happened. And it was a great, um, I would say, like, uh, reason for people to finally get out of their homes and, and Exercise and bravery, and that that kind of temporarily broke the lockdowns. But then, but then the ruling class said, "Okay, uh, you've protested racism uh, uh, enough. Now you would need to go back and uh, hide and be afraid again." You're, that time is we over. You have now. this
1: Delta va- variant. You got to stay away from. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever the newest, whatever the newest thing is. Um, I wish that I th- I, I blame a, a lot of this on. Uh, people's uh, ignorance of immunology, actually. Like, I think, um, so, I mean, there's just several rules of thumb um, in epidemiology that that we've known about for 100 years that there's a whole generation that somehow didn't know about them. But, you know, one is you want exposure to the mild pathogen to protect you from the more serious pathogen. I and mean, that's the way vaccines work, and that's that's how... Immune systems improved. Uh, the other one is that there's always a trade-off between, with these kinds of viruses, um, between prevalence and severity. So the more uh, the more cases there are, the more infectious it is, uh, the less likely it is to kill you. And that's just a kind of a principle of virus evolution. Um, you know, there's survivors. They don't want to kill their hosts. So the smart virus has spread. And don't kill. And the more infectious something is, in the sense, the uh, uh, the less deadly it is. I mean, that's just a, a sort of truism, but people forgot about that. Now, it's subject to certain conditions of latency and so on. But, but as a general principle, there is a inverse relationship between severity and prevalence, and, and so people forgot about that. Um, another one, it concerns these mutations and these variants. Um, viruses come with uh, with different mm, features, so. Uh, some are very stable, and so you can develop vaccines for them and treat them very well, and they don't mutate much. And a good example of that would be something like smallpox. You know? And then on the other side, there's 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 uh, uh, pathogens that are that are, you know, have large changes of clothes, big walking closets, and they're always, you know, changing the, their outfits, you know, every day, um, and they tend to be. Um, Yeah, so, you know, they mutate a lot. So a good example of of that would be malaria. There's no vaccine for malaria um, because it's just, you can't stabilize it enough. Uh, Coronaviruses are somewhere in between. But one of the things you know for sure is that when a new pathogen comes along, the wild type is going to be the most severe. And then it's going to, uh, then, God, I hate to anthropomorphize viruses, but like, like if they had brains, right? Uh-huh. We'd be like, okay, well that that we had a, quite a go of it, but if we keep killing at this rate, uh, we're never gonna we won't live. You know, we, we've got to uh, we've got to find new new hosts and not not kill them so that we can jump to new hosts and so we can kind of live an awesome. Right, it, you know? and and and, w- and so there's a number of strategies for doing this. One is to not kill the host. Another is to is to uh, mutate insofar as that's possible. But every mutation becomes uh, more prevalent and less severe, and so that is something huh. you know just because that's the way viruses are. That's what we've observed, and it's it's an evolutionary trait of of pathogens. So when the variants came along, I mean because I've read all this stuff, um, I knew for sure that, you know, the new variants would be less deadly than, than the wild type virus. And that's just, but Fauci's not going to tell you that, but I knew it just from reading the literature. And sure enough, it's just so tedious. And now, of course, over the last couple of weeks, there's all kinds of new studies saying, oh, it turns out the Delta variant's not as deadly as the wild type. It's like, no right. kidding. You know, you could have known that. I don't want to say a priori, but you you know that by, by virtue of you know what we learned over the 20th century. We just decided to forget it or, okay. forget it or
1: something. I because I, what you're saying is new information to me, and I'm just thrilled to hear it and I'm excited. And uh, at the same time, I'm again kind of just like frustrated because because that, that information, as you said, we have no education about immunology or, or how this stuff actually works because all we're getting is propaganda. And I, I'm wondering, is there like, is there a good place for somebody like me, a layman can, can learn about this stuff? I I, I have no, I, and I'm honest, I'm asking this coldly because I I mm-hmm. don't know, like, well, where, where can we I've, find out about this? I've read, I've read like
0: first year uh, medical textbooks on, on, on viruses and immunology over the last year. I mean, like I've read an incredible amount. Uh, the first book I read on the topic is called Cell Biology for Dummies. Um, you can download it on Amazon, it's really good. But you don't have to do that. The best single text, and it's short, and it's really evocative and brilliant, uh, is by a um, theoretical epidemiologist at Oxford University named Sunetra Gupta. And you can download for free. Her book on Amazon is called um, um, Pandemics facts, not fear. It's a terrible title. I don't like the title and I want to republish it actually um, under a different title because it's, it's a kind of a theory that's, it just, it explains pathogens to you. And and so you're not like, we have a lot of knowledge of these things. So it's not like we felt in, in February and March of 2020, like, oh, there's a terrible thing happening. We have no idea what it is. Well, we've had Vast experience with these things, and it's it's not the case that something completely unfamiliar and and new is going to come along, uh, like in the movie Contagion, for example.
1: Did you ever see that movie? I didn't. I can only imagine what it is though. So.
0: Well, it's definitely worth watching um, because it's a kind of uh, a Hollywood template for what we just went through. I mean, it's okay, got, you know, um, you know, some guy eats a you know, a, a piece of pork in, you know, some far flung wet market of China or something, and then, you know, touches a glass and it goes and does somebody else. And then she travels to Chicago and then suddenly she's okay. uh hooking up with, with her boyfriend and then he dies and then she gets home and then she dies. And then so it's this is this kind of wild I think it it had a case fatality rate of in the movie of like thirty percent. And uh, there were some epidemiologists that consult. Oh, and and one of the reasons for the hysterical reaction towards hydro, hydro, uh, hydrochloroquine, or whatever that, yeah, whatever that crazy drug was, um, was that in the movie there's a guy who's selling a cure. You know, and he's like a a blogger. <laughs> it's such a funny movie. He's a blogger. He's selling a cure, and people are clamoring into the drugstores to get the thing. And he's like making bank and everything. But, so, you know, it's got all the elements that's hydroxychloroquine, I guess. So, so if you've seen that movie, you would have said, oh, you know, okay, here we get Trump promoting the uh, fake uh, therapeutic. You know, that's exactly what we expect. But what's, what's funny about the movie is that, you know, a 30, 30% uh, case of tally rate is, is unbelievably high. And and it's funny how people die in the movie. They're just sitting there normally, and suddenly foam starts coming out of their mouth. And, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is there's nothing about this that makes any sense with any experience we've ever had, ever. And the the trick in the movie for making this plausible, even slightly plausible, is that they built into the this particular pathogen a long period of latency. So if you have a long period of latency, you can be carrying the virus, like I could get the virus in January and not know I have it until July, you know? Right catch it in July, and suddenly, you know, in December, I turn out
1: to have black lungs or whatever. And yet you're passing it along to everybody. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. So latency is one of the factors that adds, I would say, like a a complicating variable to the general principle concerning severity and prevalence, um, that if you don't know you have it, um, you you can spread it for a very long time. This was the key to AIDS. That was the it was the latency of AIDS that was so alarming, and and that is the key to its being so deadly. So, in the movie Contagion, they built into the into the virus's long latency period as a way of making it sort of more or less plausible, um, making it feel like uh, you know the plague. Um, the plague is, uh, by the way, bacterial infections, which so, is what
1: they talked about with corona. They said, hey, We have this two weeks of, of yeah, I guess you call latency that we don't know if you have it or not, that but you can be passing it along. Yeah, That's it's
0: and shorter and shorter. It, it initially, the two weeks was just a rule of thumb, but then it got reduced to five and then three days. And, and then it you know, over time, it turns out this is basically. Uh, has got the latency of a, of a typical respiratory virus, which is you know it's like a cold. You know there are two kinds of colds: there's coronavirus colds and there's uh, um, rhinovirus colds. And so yeah, it behaves pretty much like like a cold.
1: And by yeah. the way, that takes me to another point: that these elitists, these these, but and it, it, it frustrates me. It's kind of like when there's a the, when there's a problem at the bank, it's always in the bank's favor. Like when you see these studies and they first come out for some reason, there's going to be 2 million dead. You know, it's going to take, you're going to, you can carry the thing for six months and not know that you have it. You can have, and then all of a sudden, it's it's like magic. It just, as we learn more about it, it, it looks more and more and more normal. And and yeah, at the beginning, it's like, everybody thinks this is the, it's the end of the world. And that's, there's, there's absolutely no humility when it comes to stuff like this. And it drives me crazy.
0: Well, this, and this speaks to the, the point that, John Needis made um, in an article for Stat News, and I think it was the second week of March this article came out. He said, we're making appalling decisions that are going to have uh, shocking effects on, on on civilization and public health without any real evidence to back him up. And he said, "You know, well, here's what we know. And he went through the diamond princess and everything. Basically he argued this is a normal pathogen. And boy, was he uh, demonized, you know, just for his sheer scientific attitude. And there were other, th- oh God, what a time. The, the models that were predicting millions of dead and, you know, all these things that, you know, uh, uh inf- case fatality ratios, rates, of, sorry, infection fatality rates of three and 4%. Um, that was always assuming, um, homogeneous risk across all population groups. Um, the worst possible assumption you could ever build into any model is, uh, homogeneity of, of risk. And yet yeah, that's what all the models did. And once you adjust the models for heterogeneity of risk, especially for the incredible age difference um, with uh, of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 as compared, you know, with uh, pathogens of the past, you know, which actually, you know, uh, you know, the flu really affects young people a lot, actually,
1: uh, in the ways
0: in which this one does not um um uh, you know the that that assumption was never in the models i mean it was just and once you adjust the models for for the age disparities um what you get is a death rate about like what we have you know uh, there's nothing particularly unusual about it but you know once you start messing with the models and you start believing the models instead of your own eyes Uh, you've got a real problem. And that's true in every area, whether it's economics or public health or anything. So one of the things you'll learn from watching the Burks press conference on March 16th is that everything she says, she keeps referring to the models. Our models tell us that if we social distance, then the virus will become less infectious. Our models tell us that, um, you know, Avoiding congregate settings you know it has the biggest possible impact on community spread and so on. this was all about the models. So they believe the models rather than actual empirical experience. There's a real difference in a methodological issue which speaks you know we this interview is about Mises. I mean um, Mises always hated those kind of models that were unrealistic and you know try to impose upon a complicated reality a very simple, Uh, paradigm uh, that quite frequently mixes up cause and effect. One of the things used to drive him crazy was um, referring to the elasticity of demand as if it was an independent number that somehow dictated to the world, how the world was going to work rather than the reverse. That's the number you extract from existing experience which is constantly mutating and changing and evolving, right? So he, he really didn't like that mechanistic approach to economics because he was afraid it was gonna uh, tempt people to believe they can game uh, the number or, or the model or the statistics and thereby cause reality to conform to it. And that's exactly what happened um, in the case of this virus. Fauci would write journalists in uh, early March, and people would ask him, "What is the purpose of social distancing? Is it to wait for a vaccine?" And he wrote back, Michael Gerson of the Washington Post. He said, "No, that is not the point. We we don't need a vaccine uh, for this thing. What we need is to drive the R not, which is the in, in rate of infection spread, the rate of." at which the, the infections were below 1, so that so that every one person gives the virus to less than one other person, and then that will cause the virus to, um, well, then the r naught will eventually fall to zero and we won't have a problem with the pathogen anymore. Well, that's a really interesting theory, but is it really reverses cause and effect. I mean, this is like yeah. saying the way to get it to stop raining is to take down your umbrella, you know? I mean, it's a, it's it's a, it's a goofy, <laughs> right? It's it's you, fundamentally f-
1: fallacious. If you if you if you uh, take out the your 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 uh, oil gauge, you'll never run out of oil. You know? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. You're you're confusing the measurement with with the cause. Yeah, and that's what happened with Fauci and the Arnott. Um, it's it's a consequence of of over intellectualizing something and not recognizing you know the the role of of uh, you know evolved complicated systems and God, there's if you want to talk about anything that's evolved and complicated, you know the world of pathogens and our human response to them is definitely that and just it resists module these models tempt um, their architects and the people who are following them to believe that they have a level of control over the world that they just do not and and they. It, it, it promotes a kind of arrogance, you know, and that then is kind true. of push it and push it and push it while refusing to recognize that reality is not conforming to it. And that's a problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're talking to Jeffrey A. Tucker and I, and, and our time is short and I just want to thank you again for your time. And, and also I want to thank you because I think, you know, we started out, want, I started out wanting to talk about Mises and, and his influence and I think what we've done is actually more important because we've we've talked about the ideas of liberalism, the ideas of freedom, um, and the importance of 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 are making that very um, practical in what's going on today. And that's way more important than talking about theory or, or you know um, ideas. I think ideas are important in, in in context, but I think man, the this is the crisis of today. The crisis of today is is the um, effect of government due to um, a a mysterious disease that isn't quite mysterious due to putting fear on the people um, and using any means necessary to to drive that fear. So I want to thank you for doing that. I think this is an important interview. Well, thank you so much uh,
0: for reading me and I'm grateful for the opportunity to write and think about the topic. Uh, I hope that your listeners um, will take seriously the need to uh, um, you know, consider this topic very carefully and to come up with, uh, every person needs to come to terms with a, a, a new way to think about how you have a free society in the presence of infectious diseases. This is a really important topic, and we're just at the beginning of that, Um, but we've got to rethink it and recapture that spirit of of public health, uh, the common good, um, equality, uh, and individual rights and freedoms as the primary priorities for all social organization, regardless of whatever kind of emergency the ruling class has to pass off on you at any
1: moment. I can end on a better statement. Thank you so much. You've we've been listening to Jeffrey A. Tucker. My name is Mike Levitt, and we are And of Love Remains.